All right, so you wrote and sold your first script, Children of the Night, mm-hmm. and that gets released by who? That was put out by, uh, I guess it was Columbia TriStar or Sony TriStar. I forget what company, you know, that they've changed hands over the years. Yeah. I think it was Columbia TriStar, but it was produced by uh, Fangoria Films. They were Fangoria Magazine was trying to get into film production around that time. So they made a slate of three films at a studio called Windsor Lake Studios in Wisconsin. And one of the scripts they purchased was Children of the Night, which uh, I had actually written for another company uh, uh, that decided that they didn't have the money to make it. (laughs) So the script was available and uh, it got into the hands of the people who were making decisions at at Fangoria and uh, they bought it and they made a film out of it with Karen Black and to do the wheeze and garrett morris uh which i think probably is still available it's i think i've seen it on youtube and it's probably available on dvd or you know through some of the streaming services i want to say i watched it on prime but i can't remember if that's where i seen it or not it might be i mean it's you know a fairly big company that distributed it originally i don't know who owns it now it's you know uh, those companies changed so much over the past uh, 20 years that you know, who knows who actually owns the rights to it. But that was the start. And since that was a vampire thing, <clears throat> I had been developing a couple of ideas for short stories or short films back in the uh, 80s into the 90s. Uh, because back at that time, of course, we didn't have anything like digital video and there was no way to do nonlinear editing on your computer. And of course, in the 80s, we didn't have computers. Right. Uh, so the only, uh, my notion was that we could use like uh, SVHS uh, to shoot stuff and then maybe edit it in the old fashioned video editing way. Uh, and I figured that the best way to go about it would be to start with short, uh, short films. And I had two ideas. One was about a, a woman who seeks out a vampire because she wants to become a vampire herself. And I wrote that, I think I wrote maybe 10 pages uh, of that. And I had another idea for a a film about a a, uh, a vampire hunter, sort of Van Helsing type, who is uh, more dangerous and more damaging than the vampires that he's hunting. Uh, He's actually accidentally, you know, going after people who are vampires. The idea of a sort of, I'm a psychopathic vampire hunter who is indiscriminate about who he ends up staking. That's struck me as being kind of an interesting idea. So I had those two ideas. And then right around that, right around the early nineties, all the adult members of my family, my mother, my father, and my uncle, they all decided to get sick and die all at once. It was like a bunch of light bulbs going off, you know, all at once. And uh, so I had death on my mind when I was going through that process. I started to think about the idea of uh, the original notion of, of a woman who seeks out a vampire because she wants to become a vampire. Originally, I had been thinking that she did that just because she was attracted to the idea of eternal life. But then I thought, well, what if it's somebody who was faced with uh, serious illness and they knew they were going to die soon? Uh, maybe they would have an, an understandable uh, reason for seeking out a vampire and trying to convince them to make them immortal. Uh, And then it occurred to me that the best person for that sort of story would be somebody who's part of a 
vampire hunting team. Right. So that's what brought in the other idea. She's a team member, uh, part of this agency that has been developed by uh, this uh, Van Helsing type figure. Uh, and he's uh, very uh, extreme in his views. And there is the dramatic tension. He He's saying, they're all evil, kill them all, wipe them all off. And she's saying, well, no, this guy, this guy seems like, you know, a good one. Maybe we can trust him. And she's also thinking, maybe I can use him to yeah. achieve immortality. So that, I went through a number of different scripts towards the end of the 80s. And then all through the 90s, I was working on versions of the script. Actually, I have here something I just discovered today when I was going through my... Uh, my documents. Uh, this is a sort of roundup of, well, first, I guess I can show you. Uh, this, I think, is probably one of the earliest drafts of the, of the script. And you, and you can see it was done on, this is either, I guess this was an, a traditional electric typewriter. Right. It was actually like onion paper or something like I used to. <laughs> uh, and some of the stuff is really just in the form of notes. And you'll see that that name at the top, City Cinemas, that's the company, the theater company that I was working for at the time. I used to sit around after we closed the theater. And I used to sit around while I was waiting for the last show to get out and I would write notes about the uh, about uh, the script. How many so, pages was that first draft? Well, this draft, I, I think that probably what happened was this one looks like it gets up to around sixty pages. But what I, I would what I would do would be I would write for as long as I was sure about the story, and then I would sort of go back and start all over again, <laughs> yeah. a new draft, and then see if I could work stuff into the earlier scenes that would give me some place to go in the later part of the script. So I'd be able to, that's, uh, as I was developing it, I came up with the idea of the, uh, the vampire Malgod, uh, who has his own quest. He wants to, um, he wants to acquire this. He's a, he's a vampire. He became a vampire uh, back in the days of the Crusades. He was a, a knight, a Templar. And he uh, wants to acquire this medallion that uh, an ancient vampire apparently created, which will allow him to walk in the sun. And uh, he feels that this will be the sort of uh, the, the power that he needs in order to achieve his plan to take over the world. Uh, anyway, all of that came as the drafts were going on. And that's the way I did things back then uh, for all my scripts. I sort of did them in a piecemeal fashion as they went along uh i would you know come up with new ideas and say well we need something here oh here's something you know and usually the conclusion i've come to now is that if you're writing something that's meant to be a, a feature-length film you really need more than just one story you need yeah. a bunch of little stories that you can put together uh, stories that will complement each other so that there can be some interaction between the characters and there can be some dramatic uh, tension, you know, between those different elements. Anyway, all of it ended up <clears throat> as a script that I showed to the guy who was the producer, one of the producers on Children of the Night, previous film. And he looked at it, he liked it. 
and he shopped it around to a bunch of different people, people, including companies like Miramax. And Miramax, naturally, now that we're actually recording, I can't find any of the things. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Miramax actually sent a, a letter to him. He submitted it to them. And they said some very nice things about the script, but they said, we don't get involved at the script stage. Right. Well, we'll wait till you make the movie and then we'll let you know <laughs> if we are interested. Because uh, they were they were a sort of note for independent movies. That's right. right. Their studio was. And I assume that's why the producer brought the uh, brought the thing to them. Uh, I guess at that time he was shopping it around to anybody that he thought might be interested. Yeah. But it's nice to have a, a rejection letter from a big company because Miramax's name is not is somewhat tarnished now because I guess that was is that Harvey Weinstein. Harvey company? Weinstein, yeah. yeah. So it, it's not really. That much of a badge of honor to, <laughs> to have a letterhead yes. <laughs> but here's a i would do this from time to time back when in my early years as a screenwriter i'd come up with this uh, list of proposals that was little log lines for all the different scripts that i was working on mm -hmm. this is 1992 and the first one on the list is sleepless nights and actually the synopsis that i have the little log line is better than the one that i'm using now for promoting the film. <laughs> Uh, it says, when an ancient vampire lord intent on world domination takes over a Scientology-type organization to enlarge the ranks of his vampire army, the U.S. government establishes a secret agency to seek out, creatures, uh, seek out the creatures and destroy them. But one of the vampire hunter agents, a beautiful young woman, has another reason for seeking them out, not to destroy them, but to join them. She's dying of an incurable disease and rather than face an early end to her life wants to become one of the immortal denizens of the night so this is the only i think the only of the uh of all the stories that were listed on this uh in this uh, uh breakdown of of the script stars we're going this is sleepless nights is about the only one that ever went anywhere right. uh, unfortunately uh but um so in the late 90s, digital video started to become a thing. Uh, uh, Final Cut Pro, I guess, came out in late 1999. Uh, but uh, earlier than that, there were things like Avid and Premiere, uh, Adobe Premiere. Yeah. And when the digital cameras started becoming available, uh, it was real, a real breakthrough. And I don't know if uh, there was any great rush of professional feature filmmakers, studio you know, level folks to embrace digital video because it still was really only usable for TV purposes. Yeah. Well, you have George Lucas to thank, I think. He came along after us, though. That's, yeah. And, uh, well, I think, I think he had been working with Sony for a while, even before. To develop the technology. To, yeah, to make right. the digital cameras. Well, Sony came out with a camera called the DVX 1000, and that was the that was sort of like the workhorse camera back around that time in the in the late 90s. Uh, and uh, so, out of the blue, one day, uh, Howard Nash, the producer that I had, had sent Sleepless Nights to in the early 90s, he reached out to me in the late 90s. I guess it was around 1998, and he said, "I have all the money in place." to do a small film, a $20,000 feature, but the person 
who had the script has withdrawn it. So I have the investors, I have the money, but I don't have the script. What do you have? And I said, well, you know, I showed you Sleepless Nights. It's something that could be done on a low budget because it was designed to be done on a low budget. But I don't know if you can do it on $20,000. <laughs> so he said, don't worry about it. I'll raise more money. And that's when Sleepless Nights went uh, into production. This is, uh, it started, we started shooting actually in 1999. And originally, I guess he found a, a DP who uh, had his own camera. And that was very important back oh, then yeah. because <laughs> to rent those cameras on a daily basis would have been ridiculously expensive. So he, he figured, well, I'll, I'll get this guy. He's right out of college. He's got his own camera and I'll also make him the director. So he's gonna be the director and the DP and also uh, have to bring the camera all for one low price. The only problem was he was Japanese. <laughs> and he didn't, didn't really speak English that well. so. We both went to see him to talk to him about the project. And afterwards, I, I, we were saying, how, how are we gonna get a guy who doesn't, just barely can be understood, how is he going to be able to direct a film that's like 90% dialogue? Yeah. And so Howard, always looking for a bargain, turned to me and said, well, why don't you direct it? Because he knew that I wouldn't, he, he could get me to direct it without paying me, so. So I couldn't really pass up the opportunity, although I was at a very low ebb, uh, you know, a very low point in my life at that point. I was drinking very heavily. I was broke. Uh, and it was actually while we were midway through the shoot on Sleepless Nights that I finally stopped drinking. And I had to because there was no way I would have been able to <laughs> yeah. make it through the production if I continued to drink. So it had that one beneficial effect on me. It, it cured me of my, uh, my problem drinking. We went into production in, I think it was September of 1999. And uh, because I was coming in as sort of as a, as a last minute director, and there was a lot of stuff that uh, we didn't have any chance to really prepare. It was really just getting the cast was an ordeal. Uh, and and I, you know, I, I won't bore you with the, the long version of that story, but it really was, it went on uh, for uh, weeks, it seemed. And we were really beginning to despair that we weren't going to find anybody that could, that could uh, handle the dialogue. I mean, it was a non-union film, but I figured we're doing this movie in New York, right? Surely there must be endless numbers of people that aren't yet in the union who can, uh, you know, give us, give us a good performance. So you didn't do like a you didn't do like a a normal audition session, or did you? We did. Matter of fact, I think I have here. If I can find it, I think I, I think I have the original. Yes, here this is uh, this is what backstage show business. We ran ads in show business and backstage. And uh, here's our ad right there. Uh, New York indie horror feature. Uh, Director William Hopkins are casting a supernatural thriller. And uh, so we got a tremendous number of headshots. And for a couple of years after that, I was carting around from one apartment to another as I moved. I was carting around several boxes for the headshots <laughs> yeah. because I thought maybe these people could be used at some point for future projects. But we winnowed that down to, uh, I guess it was less than 100 people. And uh, it was kind of a dispiriting thing to see folks 
that just didn't seem to be able to walk and talk at the same time. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but we did get lucky. We got a fellow by the name of Bob Chateau, and he was a New York City theater actor. And as a theater actor, at least at that point, I don't know if this is still true, but you could have a career as a, as a stage actor and not be in the Screen Actors Guild. At that point, he hadn't done any screen acting work or television work. So uh, he came on as Dr. Sloan, the vampire hunter character. And it just so happens that he knew a bunch of very talented young actors that were starting out, you know, professional level caliber people, people that had done a certain number of things. Uh, and he brought them onto the production. And uh, Matt Thomas and Richard Ryan, I think, are both from BART. I believe he also brought uh, Jacqueline Anderson in. So those are the three, uh, the three leads that we ended up with. And we found Adrian Alvarado who plays Stritch uh, and Gil Lopez who plays Scott Reese. We found them on our own. And we eventually, uh, uh, it's a long story, but we eventually found the guy who uh, ended up playing Malgon. So those people came on and, and right away, <clears throat> uh, you know, things seemed much brighter because these were people with real gravitas and screen presence. Uh, Jacqueline is a stunningly attractive person. And uh, there's a real advantage to having somebody like that on your production if it's a low budget production. If you show up in a, in a location and the person who owns the place is giving you a hard time, you know, I, I didn't realize you were bringing all these people. You just point to her. So yeah. there's a leading lady, which I introduced. <laughs> Suddenly they are, you know, they feel like they're in show business, you know. And the same is true with uh, our leading men. Both of these guys are 6'2", six, 6'4", six, and they look like, you know, movie stars. Uh, so that made a big difference because there wasn't anything else in the movie that looked like it belonged in a movie. Uh, locations that we, we were using very often were just whatever place we could find where people would let us shoot. And there usually was no money or time to really fix them up to make them look uh, more interesting or more appropriate for the scenes. Uh, I guess the thing that still bothers me now all these years later is seeing those scenes that we did in a uh, living room of, uh, it's actually the executive producer's living room at a house in Long Island. Of course, we were very, uh, very grateful that he allowed us to take over his house. Yeah. But we didn't have any time to do anything to the place. So it, it looked like a house that... Uh, that that uh, nobody lived in. Well, it looked like a house that a guy his age... He, yeah, he was, yeah. He was, a, a, uh, I guess, in his 40s, and he was a... a divorced man with two children and so all the things that were on the shelves and everything and all the furnishings suggested that it was somebody else other than a young woman like caitlin yeah uh, he would be living there he actually had another piece of property nearby which was empty and we used that for for gray's house but the problem there was we couldn't do anything to it to make it look like it was you know messed up it it, it looked he had just had it painted he had just had the floors <laughs> done because he was trying to sell the place so it was in perfect condition I mean, the floors had a shine to them, and we had to try to pass that off as a, a derelict building, you know. So that's those are the aspects of the film that really uh, scream low budget. Yeah. Almost, almost well, I, I mean, I was watching. I mean, I thought all the actors were fine. They were all they done all a great job. Labart Shadow Guy. For some reason, he looked familiar. Okay, I kept. Like, I've probably seen him somewhere else, but I guess I haven't. Well, you might have seen him. I mean, he maybe. Was, he was just in a small part in the revival of Murphy Brown that they did oh, okay. a couple of years ago. 
But uh, I I didn't mind. I thought the locations. I mean, for a low budget movie, I thought you done. You know, like your your police station, or not the police station, but the headquarters of the task force, and you know, what was the office building you were in, right in the hallway with the elevator? The uh, we found a, a building on Fifth Avenue, uh, where um, I guess he was a friend of the producers of Howard Nash's. He he ran a, a company that made mattresses, and he had a show place, uh, and his office in this Fifth Avenue office building. So he gave us access to his office and we tried to avoid showing the mattresses and that's Malgod's office. And the halls outside, <clears throat> we would go in late at night and we would shoot in the halls and on the elevators. And then we found another person who had access to a medical uh, office building in uh, Long Island. And uh, she really gave us the whole run of the place. She right. was she was actually in the film. Her name is Tara Gallagher, and she plays the doctor that gives the bad news to uh, to Jacqueline to uh, Caitlin that she's dying. Uh, her mother, I guess, was a surgeon who worked in an office building. She may have owned the building. I don't know. But we shot all the stuff around the in the lobby and around the base of the building uh, towards the end of the film. All of that was shot at that location, and. Uh, the medical facility where you see them looking at the x-rays that was shot at that location. The room that she gives the bad news to Caitlin that was shot at that location. Uh, so that we, uh, we had that and we also had uh, all those scenes of uh, when Jeff is coming into the building and getting past the security guards and getting on the elevator that was shot at that location. And we tried to match it up with the stuff that we had shot on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan where the whole the hallway with the elevators uh, was shot. And it was interesting because the first time we shot in that hallway was like two days before uh, Matt Thomas left the production. Right. And the woman that was playing Allison, his wife, we destroys in that scene, she wasn't available. And I thought, well, we'll just go ahead and we'll shoot it and we'll use a stand in and we'll hope that at some point we'll be able to come back here. I mean, that was a real wild, that's a real long shot, right? Yeah. You get a chance to come in, in and shoot in a Fifth Avenue office building and pretty much have the run of the floor. And then you're thinking, well, maybe we can somehow find a way to come back here, <laughs> you know, maybe in six months or a year and shoot the rest of the scene. And sure enough, somehow just through dumb luck, we were able to go back and shoot the rest of the scene with the actress that hadn't been available that day. So uh, the, in many respects, dumb luck was uh, what got us through uh, and also persistence because I had to give credit to our producers, both Frank and uh, Howard. Uh, they never stopped, you know, no matter how many problems came up when Matt Thomas said, you know, guys, I got a, I got a better job. I got to move on to another film. It's got an actual budget. They got to actually pay me. <laughs> Uh, you know, a lot of people would have said, well, that's it. How can you make a movie when the leading right. man leaves? But we shot all of his remaining stuff in the next two days in close-up. And then we continued on over the next, I think it was, went on for more than a year after that, shooting whenever we could raise enough money, you know. So what, like, what, what do you think the total budget was after you were done? 
Well, the producer kept me away from uh, any of the financial aspects. Of sure. <laughs> uh, my estimate is probably somewhere a little less than $70,000. Uh, his estimate is a little more, but he might be including all sorts of administrative expenses uh, that, that I wouldn't really have any knowledge of. But it's less than $100,000. So for a film with, I don't know, 25 speaking parts and uh, uh, seven or eight different locations and a lot of special effects and stunts, uh, that's practically nothing, you know. Yeah. $100,000, even if we had had a full $100,000, that would have been half of what uh, John Carpenter had when he was doing Halloween, uh, which actually is a less elaborate production. Yeah. Uh, that's really just a guy in a mask running around after, you know, some teenagers. Uh, but... Uh, yeah, normally when you hear low-budget horror movie, it's usually just filmed in the woods or right. an empty parking lot. <laughs> so, I mean, the fact that you had all these great locations, I think that really helped me. I thought it was great. I thought it helped it out a lot. Well, I th yeah, and I feel sorry that we weren't able to shoot in high definition. You know, this is, it's an example of coming along uh, a little too early. Uh, we, uh, we had no choice but to do it in standard definition because there was no technology that we could afford that, that was available at the time if we were going to shoot it in uh, on film then we you know we would have had to add considerably more to the budget yeah uh so the the uh, ability to uh, the, our ability to do the film hinged on doing it in digital video and the only cameras that were available at the time were standard definition cameras and it didn't seem at the time to matter because uh uh everybody in the country and maybe everybody in the world was watching TV on analog TVs, okay, yeah. definition TVs, and it looked fine on that, you know. Uh, but now, of course, we live in a high definition age and you can't really get anybody to be enthusiastic about a movie that looks like it was shot in standard definition video. So that's one of the reasons why I was interested in going back after all this time and re-editing the film and uprising it to high definition and doing everything I could to try to make the thing look a little richer and a little more polished than it originally did. Uh, and because I wasn't, I didn't have any budget for this uh, new version, I just I had to do it whenever I had the time. Right, you know? yeah. And because there wasn't a deadline, that was an advantage because I could spend as much as I wanted to on each scene. And it's a significant amount of difference. I mean, it's really... Uh, it, it's drawn from the same footage largely, uh, but you know I use a lot of alternate takes, and I the editing, everything is re-edited. Every scene is re-edited, and every shot is carefully considered, and all the all the audio has been fixed. You know, uh, all the things that were kind of lumpy uh, and awkward in the original film have been sort of smoothed out now, and tried to pick up the pace. Uh, because that was a problem with the original cut. I mean, it's funny when we were shooting the original film, because we ran out of money at a certain point, we had to shut down for like eight months. And then when we went back into production, we would shoot for two or three days on weekends, whenever the producer was able to raise, you know, enough money to uh, do a couple of days. Right. And so the shoot seemed to go on forever. What's, the, then, what's that, what's that do to your, uh, 
morale or you're like you're eight you're not gonna be doing this for eight months how how hard is it to go back to it well i think that it probably if we had known that that's the way things would have worked out i don't think anybody would have been interested in getting involved yeah but uh, the way things fell together it wasn't really that much of uh, an endurance test because uh, i felt like i could take some time in between those during those breaks that we had to prepare for the next scene and like for instance the uh, one of the things one of the major sequences that we did when we went back into production was the whole uh vampire the abandoned warehouse where the malgod has his coven all, all the scenes with him talking to stretch and then the ceremony where they're going to in, uh, indoctrinate uh, uh hogarth and then hogarth is beheading and then the the, the big raid I mean, the raid by itself, something like that would normally be many days, even on low budget production. Yeah. And it would be probably be, you know, a big part of the budget to do a scene that involves all those people, everybody in costume, stunt work, uh, special effects work, makeup work. Uh, you know, that would be, it's almost like the budget of, a, of the film could have been spent just on that one scene. But because we had some time, we could, you do a lot of preparation and and uh, we didn't have to spend money we could just spend time thinking about how to do certain things and prepare the, th uh, the thing so when we got to the location uh, you know it still was uh, a big experience you know uh, it was it was not easy to do but it was uh, we felt like we had more control over the things if we had tried to do that to be honest with you i don't even know how we would have ever been able to get through it if we tried to do a scene like a sequence like that while we were during the first phase of the production with the crew members that we had at the time and uh with the facilities that we had at the time and with the with the schedule that we were working on i don't think we'd ever been able to do it you know as a matter of fact one of the action scenes if it can be called that in the that was done in the first phase of the production is that scene where jeff comes in on uh, Caitlin and 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 Gray, and he has the uh, has his crossbow on them. And then at a certain point, uh, Jacqueline tries to tackle him. He pushes her down. Gray turns off the lights, and uh, Jeff is swinging his crossbow around in the dark, searching the room with his flashlight. Uh, all of that stuff that was like done in a couple of hours. And uh, it didn't look very good in the original cut. And I was so pleased that I was able this time because I had the time to do it. It could take like a week or a month to just keep working on that, trying different things, rearranging the scenes. And still nothing spectacular about it because ultimately you're working with that footage. But I managed to edit it so at least it goes by quickly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's not embarrassing. You know, it's not awkward in the way that the original, original version was. Uh, and I think the the raid scene actually plays pretty well now. You know, it looks oh, like yeah. somebody spent a little time and money on that. So that was my, you know, the, the goal was to try to first go back and take out all the stuff that's embarrassing. Uh, you know, the, the one thing we should be able to say about it is at least it isn't embarrassing. Right. But then also to try to actually maximize the effectiveness of the scenes. Uh, I realize there are some people that are look uh, that would look at something like this, and as soon as they see that it's in four by three, as soon as they get the impression that it was something shot in standard definition video, they'd lose their interest. They'd say, "Well, this isn't a real movie." 
I don't know. I've been watching a lot of A24 movies, and a lot of their stuff is in 4x3. Yeah. One of the movies, I think, is actually not even 4x3. It's more, pretty sure it's like an Instagram format. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, it's weird. It's the rounded edges and everything, so. Well, that is an advantage. But maybe you should shop it to <laughs> A24. Maybe well, you know, there's a, there's a certain unfairness about the way things work. Uh, certain things that are handicapped for a low-budget film can actually be selling points for a film that has a big name distributor behind yeah. it. You know, they can say, well, we shot it in four by three. That was our artistic choice. That was a creative decision that we made. We have to, I, I think most people would look at our film and say, well, they didn't have any choice. It wasn't yeah. a creative decision. That was the way movies were shot back then. Uh, but I, uh, one of the things that I was sort of uh, uh, intrigued by was the idea of sort of rescuing this film. Because after its initial release, we put it out uh, to a company uh, that uh, had an arrangement with Blockbuster, uh, and they were able to get it into, you know, I think they had it at one out of every three uh, Blockbuster stores in North America, which is a considerable number. Oh, yeah. Put it out on VHS. That's how old the, the thing was. It's interesting about this uh, cover art, um, which is pretty, it's pretty good cover art. Uh, but it wasn't really done for this movie. Uh, they came up with other cover art that had a vampire, Malgod-like vampire, uh, with his hand around a, uh, a woman's throat. And in order to get into Blockbuster, you had to have a rating. And when you get a rating, you have to submit to the MPAA. And they will. They also approve or disapprove, disapprove your artwork, your, your uh, poster, your key art, and your trailer. And they saw the guy with his hand around the woman's throat and they said, no, no. So the company distributor pulled what I assume is artwork for another film that might've been a Western. Yeah. Put a little <laughs> bit of New York City in the background. I don't know what any of this is because there's nothing like that in Sleepless Nights. And they put a red robe or something and put the goggles on him. So he looks a little bit like the, uh, the vampire hunters in our film. And they put the little bats in the sky. So they came up with a nice piece of artwork, uh, but the it doesn't really reflect the movie. Maybe you could say it reflects the spirit of the movie. Yeah. But, uh, the problem with this artwork is that <clears throat> it's very dark. And when <clears throat> you put uh, dark artwork behind these plastic sleeves and you put this on a shelf in Blockbuster, that, and it's usually angled like this. With the light, yeah. <laughs> practically becomes invisible. So I don't know if that affected our, our sales. Maybe we would have done more rentals. Maybe it would have been more successful uh, if uh, the artwork had had a little more, you know, pop to it. But uh, it did reasonably well, I suppose. I think they grossed about $170,000 in the initial run. Uh, our part of that was minuscule, so right. uh, the movie never really made money for the investors. And afterwards, uh, you know, I sort of felt this isn't something I want to be known for. <laughs> All of its uh, shortcomings sort of stood out to me. And immediately after getting Sleepless Nights released, me and Frank Silla uh, were already working on Demon Resurrection. So I had this feeling, oh, put that stuff behind us now. You know, we're going to do it right this time. And I think Team Resurrection probably has uh, some uh, strengths that Sleepless Nights doesn't have. I think it's probably a more enjoyable film. 
uh, all these years later, as we got around to the, like the 20th anniversary of Sleepless Nights going into production, uh, I started to speak to Frank about the possibility of maybe putting it out again, you know. Uh, and originally, my thinking was, why don't we put it out as an extra on a DVD or Blu-ray of Demon Resurrection? Uh, and then that mutated into, oh, why don't we put it out as its own DVD or Blu-ray? And then I had a look at the movie again. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to put this out. You know, I don't want people to be uh, pointing to this as a sample of my work. And unfortunately, uh, we had lost the original project. I had lost the original project files. I don't know if people, uh, if there's a common understanding how video editing works but basically you you're shooting on a camera that uses tapes back then we were using mini dv tapes and then you capture that to your computer you put it on external hard drives and then you create a project in final cut pro and you put that media on the timeline and you edit it in the, in the way you want that's the process right to have everything all the sound and the images just the way you want and then when you're finished you export a you know, like a master file is a quick time movie and it's full resolution and it's got audio and video. And that we had in the intervening years, we had lost all the project files. So there was no way to go back into the project and, and start to re-edit it and fix it. Uh, it would have to be done from scratch. And that would mean recapturing all the video footage again. Fortunately, Frank Silla had retained a set, a full set of all the mini DV tapes. So what I did was I sat down, I captured all that footage again, and then I put one of those QuickTime versions of the full movie on the timeline and start to add the video footage above it and the timeline right. above it. So essentially recreating the original project file. Once I had done that, and that was quite a long process. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> uh, once I did that, then I could go in and start to re-edit it the way I thought it should be. Fix the sound, you know, and do all this, uh, redo the special effects, and, and re-edit the scenes so that they move more quickly. And we got rid of re a redundant dialogue, and just you know made it better, hopefully. And I thought that that was probably worth doing because there was some potential in the footage, I think, and there was some potential in the story. And if I felt that if we can get it, uh, get it this as good as it can be, then maybe it would have some value, you know, as entertainment and maybe have some commercial value. Uh, and I was just happy to be able to rescue it from oblivion because right. there wasn't anybody else who was ever going to put out another version of this. It was pretty much, you know, it would have been a lost film, essentially. After all of these DVDs had turned to dust, there wouldn't be anything else that, you know, the movie would only exist as whatever copies of the DVD or the VHS tapes uh, that people might have had. So now it'll exist for for Forever. all time. Yeah, <laughs> and I think it's a much better film. To be honest, it's uh, it's the first film had a sort of uh, a lumpy quality to it because, as I say, even though the shoot went on for a long time, by the time I started to edit it originally, when I, you know I was. I never edited a movie of any kind, but I had certainly never edited a movie on uh, in Final Cut Pro. Right. I was learning the software while I was editing my first feature film. And we had the additional problem of uh, losing some of our actors. 
So I had to figure out a way to edit those scenes so that it wouldn't be obvious that, that we were using stand-ins. Uh, also, we were losing locations. We ended up shooting on like three different roofs for the climactic roof scene. And we had to find, every time we shot, that would be slightly different, you know? So we had to, I had to find a way in the editing to hide those differences in the configuration of the roof. Uh, uh, the fellow that we originally hired to play Malgod, he, uh, we didn't really get to the scenes uh, that he was in, in the first phase. Uh, towards the end of the first phase of the shoot, we brought him in for one day so he could play some of those scenes on the roof with Matt Thomas, who was about to leave. Yeah. And then when we shut down, it was like six or eight months and finally he called and says, I can't wait any longer. I got I got another gig, I gotta go off and do it. <laughs> so before we went back into production after the shutdown, we had to do another round of auditions to find people to, to, uh, in, to find somebody to play Malga. Uh, and uh, along the way, we also found a bunch of folks to be the Vampire Coven uh, members and also the NCA agents. And I, I guess we were also casting at the time for stand-ins for Matt Thomas and also for Bart. Uh, Bart, uh, being a successful stage actor, right around that time, he went on tour with Les Mis. Mm -hmm. He's out of the state. Yeah. <laughs> so all those scenes that we shot of, uh, of Caitlin and Jeff talking to Dr. Sloan early, fairly early in the film, uh, that was all they were playing to a stand-in and then when bart came back from his toy he shaved off his beard and we found an uh, uh an office building in uh in manhattan and we went up there and it was sort of looked like the office that we had shot in in long, long island uh actually that was in long island city the uh, draperies for business was the place that we shot in long island city. it was a draperies company uh and they had the those offices and we used their offices for uh, for Caitlin and Jeff's dialogue. Uh, and then we went, <laughs> I, it might've been more than a year. We went and shot uh, Bart's uh, close-ups. And unfortunately- It fits, it didn't stand out, I couldn't tell. Yeah, I, I, would have, it, I would have known unless you told me. <laughs> well, that's good to hear because I think that probably people would just assume that I was unimaginative in my camera movement. Uh, rather than that the actor wasn't there because people yeah. really don't have reason, any reason to assume that the actors wouldn't be there. Uh, but because he wasn't there and because we were shooting in a different place when we did his stuff, it pretty much was all just head and shoulders shots of him. Uh, so it's not the most exciting scene, but yeah. uh, it, uh, for hopefully it doesn't look like he was absent. And of course, later in the film, uh, there are scenes that we actually shot earlier uh, that have him actually interacting with people and out and about. So it gives the impression that the actor was there, yeah. but for a good chunk of time, he wasn't. Uh, but he was very helpful. And, and uh, all of those folks that, well, you know, a lot of people, if they're professional actors, they might say, this movie is cursed. Let's, <laughs> yeah. let's not bother. And somebody like Jacqueline, who was, you know, she, would probably normally not be the sort of person who'd be bothering hanging around with fools like me and some of the other people that were involved. You know, she was married at the time to a fellow who was running the Whitney Museum. Hmm. And uh, his name was Maxwell Anderson. And he was the grandson or great-grandson of Maxwell Anderson, the famous American playwright, uh, who at an 
at one time was considered the best player in America. He was actually he had a reputation that was on the level of Eugene O'Neill. Uh, so Maxwell Anderson, the grandson or great grandson, whatever he was, presumably is a fairly wealthy fellow. And he was, uh, the, I don't know what they call him, the head curator or the uh, director of the Whitney Museum. So while we were shooting Sleepless Nights, it wasn't unusual to open up the post and see on page six pictures of our leading lady at these gala events <laughs> yeah. with billionaire people standing next to her. And, you know, she was a sort of a, um, a socialite. She was a, a you know, an important person about town. Uh, and so in all honesty, I don't think she would only be bothered with, with idiots like me. <laughs> but to her credit, even as these other people were leaving the production and even as we had uh, delays in the shoot, uh, she stuck with us and she, uh, you know, was there right through to the end of the shoot. So I really appreciated that. And yeah. I guess that's a sign of a real professional. I yeah, somebody, she, yeah, she was really good at it. I thought she did a fine job. Yeah. And, and I, I don't think that uh, there's certainly nothing about any of the acting that you could say that, that's uh, and so, you know, so bad it's good type stuff. Right. It's all good, solid acting and it's all done in a way that we, if you saw it on like the uh, CW or, uh, or any of the uh, you know, syndicated shows that are run on those local stations, you would say this is just another episode of Supernatural. Or <laughs> yeah. The only thing that really marks it as uh, something less than a, a fully professional production is the budget, you know, and yeah. the sort of threadbare quality that it has. And of course, the fact that it's all dialogue, basically. Uh, that I think is probably the biggest stumbling block uh, as far as us making a success out of this is that there, you know, there's a real resistance uh, to movies that are almost like stage plays. Yeah. Even though most TV shows, you know, Star Trek and all, all the other shows, usually they are mostly dialogue. It's usually people standing on a set talking to each other. It's just that they have so much nicer sets, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. cinematography and all those things. That makes those long dialogue scenes palatable, you know. We didn't have that, you know, so it, it, it's a bit of a challenge. But my hope is that this version uh, maybe is a little more tolerable, even for people that don't like. Yeah. Now, see, I, I don't have anything to compare it to. I've only seen the the re-edited, so I don't. But I, I still enjoyed it. But. Well, I, I'm going to try to keep you from seeing the. Original yeah. <laughs> I don't want to uh, damage your opinion of the thing. Yeah. I mean, I've heard I've heard from people who say they like the original version as well. As a matter of fact, we got some decent reviews. We even got a review from Tim Lucas, who did uh, who was the editor of Video Watchdog, which was a fairly influential magazine back around that time, and he gave it a very solid. He didn't rave about it, but right. you know, he said it was a good a good first film, a worthy effort. Uh, and uh, so it's not as if the first film didn't get any love from anybody. It's just that I could see where, you know, it was never going to be held in very high regard because it had the, the mark of something that had been done on video. Yeah. And that's not a look that, even though everything is being done on video now, <laughs> you know, it, it's a, it's a, it falls between two uh, stools. The On the one hand, it's not like one of those shot on video things that you might have seen from the 80s that certain people might be enthusiastic about now because it looks so terrible. And yeah. Sort of, um, it's not like uh, things. Is that uh, was that shot on video? I think it might have been. I think so. Yeah. There are a couple of movies uh, from that period when people were shooting on I don't know 
beta cam when they were shooting on SVHS uh, or high eight, uh, a couple of films from that period that have sort of become like cult items now. And you see some of the companies that we, and distributors that we follow putting out these sort of lavish Blu-ray editions of it. <laughs> yeah. And I guess it's kind of an ironic thing, you know, it's a, to make a fuss over something that, you know, most of these movies, uh, most of those films are pretty uh, rough to be polite. Yeah. Uh, so our film isn't that bad, you know, it's not on that level, but at the same time, it's not on the level of like a studio feature film. And the company that put it out originally on, on video, they made every effort to try to make it seem like, uh, like a medium budget studio film, like something that might've been done for one of the cable companies or something. And that may have worked against us because people pick up the DVD in their store. They never heard about it. You know, who knows what this is, but it looks interesting. They bring it home and they're watching a movie that looks like it was made for hundred thousand dollars. A little disappointing. So I don't know if maybe the Robert Rodriguez approach might've been more appropriate. Maybe, you know, the, uh, what he did with El Mariachi and what his distributor did was ba- make a big deal out of the fact that it was a movie that had been made for so little. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I enjoyed that movie regardless of the budget, but it certainly helps to convince, you know, to like get the art house crowd to a point right, yeah. and say, look at this fellow, look what he did for so, you know, so, such a small amount of money. Uh, but our distributor wasn't interested in doing that because they didn't really care about the public reaction. They knew they were going to be able to move a certain number of copies regardless of what the critics said or regardless of whether or not uh, the audience reacted well to it. Uh, and once they had sold the first printing of the, of the film, that was it. They didn't, they weren't yeah. interested in, you know, if it had been a blockbuster, then they were. <laughs> <continued it>. Yeah. <laughs> but that, that of course is also the, the mistake that we made as naive young filmmakers. You know, everybody assumes that if you get a distribution deal, it means that the distributor is going to promote your film and they're going to keep pushing it and putting out new copies of it, and, you know, forever, you know, and that's not the way they do business. No. They have a specific number in mind. They know how many DVDs and VHS tapes they have to uh, have printed up and they know that they can move those. They know that they already have a buyer for those regardless of the quality. And once that's sold, they're done. They've made their money back on this thing. So uh, we, if we had that knowledge, you know, it would have been good. <laughs> yeah. We would have been in a better bargaining <laughs> position. And I don't know if there were, been, uh, that's the other thing. Uh, we, made, we made a film that really had no possibility of ever being released in theaters because uh, the quality of the image just wasn't there. Yeah. The DVX 1000 wasn't a good camera for its time, but it was a camera that had a built-in lens. And the lens was not uh, high enough quality for feature filmmaking. It was a lens that was perfectly appropriate for doing, you know, home movies or maybe even for doing documentaries. You could take a nice, pretty picture of a sunset with it. Yeah. But uh, doing the sort of things that we were doing in Sleepless Nights, shooting in the equivalent of a candlelit room, is not going to look very good on in standard definition with a soft lens, with a lens that isn't a high quality lens. With Demon Resurrection, we got, got wise. We realized we had to get a camera that we could actually put a professional lens on so we get a high quality image. And that made a big difference because when the time came to do the high definition version of Demon Resurrection, 
I could enlarge the picture to fill a widescreen frame. But sleepless nights, it has to be a four by three because yeah. if you enlarge that picture, it's like <laughs> it's straight, it, yeah. Right? So, so how many how many laughs do you think the baby in the fridge gets? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Mike Marino is one of the associate producers on the film. Who also, is in like plays like a dozen parts in the film. He's one of the uh, machete vampires. He's the dark-haired machete vampire. Mm -hmm. When we uh, showed the film at the Long Island Film Festival, he said that some woman, when she saw that scene, she got up and she ran out. (laughs) (laughs) That should have been your marketing right there. I would, yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's kind of funny because, I mean, it's pretty obviously a doll. A doll, yeah. And when I was doing the new version, I thought to myself, well, I could fix that. I could do stuff to make it look a little more convincing. But is it a good idea? because we're trying to get on streaming channels and we have yeah. no idea what sort of criteria they use. If they get one complaint from somebody that says, you're showing it that baby. And <laughs> yeah. Well, that might be it for us, you know? So I figure I'll leave it alone. I mean, the idea is what is supposed to be amusing, right? The yeah. Why has that baby <laughs> hanging up in the refrigerator? Uh, it doesn't need to be, you know, disturbing. Super, yeah. Baby. Hyper-realistic. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it got, always gets a reaction. There's a, a few things in the film that always get a strong reaction. And that's certainly one of them. Uh, the other thing that always gets a laugh is the I hate mornings coffee mug. Yeah, yeah. The vampires is, uh, is using. Uh, that fellow, actually both of the security guards have since passed away, sadly. Uh, Billy Murray, who is one of our associate producers, he plays the vampire security guard who's outside the building and gets staked by Jeff and the heavy set guy who uh, has the coffee cup. That's a fellow by the name of Robert Bono. They both passed away within a few years after uh, sleepless nights was finished. So that's too bad. That's how you know when you're getting old. Yeah. yeah there's an increasing <laughs> list of people that have died. Steve McGalnick, uh, who was a fellow that helped us with our audio on both sleepless nights and demon resurrection. He passed away fairly recently. Uh, Hayden Lee, who was an actor who helped us with the casting of, of Demon Resurrection. He, I learned that he passed away recently. Uh, so, you know, uh, it's gotten to the point now where I really don't want to look up any of these yeah. other actors that I work with. <laughs> yeah. so, you know, it's sort of bad news that I, but I have looked up Jacqueline and she still looks as stunning as she ever did. Yeah, I was looking at her. She still, still looks like she's still acting. She was on some Law and Order, I think, last time, last she, thing I've seen. She was on uh, an episode of Law and Order. Uh, I, I think that was done a little while ago. Uh, she did a, vid, a video series, uh, a web series uh, fairly recently. And I think she produced uh, The Box. The Box, box with Jacqueline. Right. right. I don't know. Uh, it went over or, or, you know, I don't know if she's doing anything else, but uh, uh, Matt Thomas under a different name actually has gone on to become quite a well-established uh, actor in TV and movies. Uh, so, you know, and Adrian Alvarado who plays Stritch, he actually went on and did several years on General Hospital, one of the other soap operas. So he has a following as well. And, uh, I'm trying to think. I think there are a few other folks that went on and, and established themselves. Craig Lindbergh, who did our makeup, he did the fangs and that sort of thing. Uh, he actually has become a very well-established makeup artist, and he 
worked on a whole bunch of big feature films like Spider-Man and uh, 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 I think he worked on one of the John Wick movies and uh, uh, he also uh, worked on Saturday Night Live for, for, for a while and uh, a bunch of TV series, uh, well-known TV series. He was up for a couple of Emmys, I think, uh, nominated mm -hmm. for a couple of Emmys. So he's established himself pretty well. Yeah, I was going to ask, speaking of the, the vampires with long hair, when I first seen them, I was like, these have to be like a, there's like a local band. <laughs> That's <laughs> what I said. I just hired, you figure you hired like a local musicians that were in a band. Well, Mike Marino <clears throat> was actually somebody who I think Howard Nash, the producer, was uh, had some interaction with before. Sleepless Nights. He is, uh, he does have his own band or is in, in a band. And the other fellow whose name I don't recall, uh, I haven't had any, uh, I don't have any knowledge of whatever happened to him. But I think at the time he was a uh, heavy metal uh, band member or had his own heavy metal band. So you're right. That's. Uh, and then that's was the, the, the guy with the snake. That was another. The guy with the snake. Yeah. Well, that's that's yeah. He's. Yeah. I don't know whatever happened to him. We originally brought him in as an extra, and when he showed up, and he had the snake with him, I thought, well, maybe we can make use of this. <laughs> yeah. So he had a great look. He couldn't really handle dialogue, though. That was a problem, and that was a problem with a lot of the folks that ended up getting, uh, you know, lesser roles is that uh, people can have a great look but they just can't do the dialogue yeah and uh there's not no no way around that i mean we have a film that's basically entirely dialogue you need people that can handle dialogue yeah and uh some of the scenes that uh, matt and uh, jacqueline are, are in and ryan uh, you really, you can see that these are professionals. You can see that they're, it's not that the writing is that brilliant and it's not that their performances are transcendent. They're not going to get awards, but just to have solid professional work, you know, where it, it isn't ridiculous. It, it isn't embarrassing. Yeah. You know, they show up on time, they know their lines and they, you know, do a good job. And uh, unfortunately, there are some folks that, you know, and I won't say who, but there were a couple of folks that really uh, tested our patience. Yeah. <laughs> People that apparently didn't feel that it was necessary to learn their lines, you know. But all through the shoot, uh, guys like uh, Adrian and Gil Lopez and uh, and Matt and, and Richard and, and Jacqueline, they all, and their professionalism was really, you know, what held the whole thing together. The fact that you know that there are some actors without any preparation at all, you can put them in front of the camera and say action and you're going to get something. Useful. Yeah. Where there's other people where it's just, just doing two or three lines. It's like pulling teeth, you know? And uh, I have to admit that there are some people who I'm, I still have uh, evil thoughts about because <laughs> the, the footage that we ended up with when we did their scenes is so hard to edit into something presentable. Now, I'm, not, I'm not talking about folks who are not professional actors. We had a couple of people that weren't really very good. They weren't really professional actors and they were involved in the production because they were giving us some resources and we threw them a role in the film as a, as yeah. a way of thanking them. That probably isn't such a good idea. I mean, if you're gonna give a role to somebody uh, as a way of thanking them, give them some small role, you know, not a major scene with a dialogue. Because what happens is if you do that, then the, your professional actors, the people that really are competent, uh, they resent that. You know, they're saying, you expect me to do a good job. I show up knowing my lines and I'm working <laughs> yeah. against this guy. 
but uh, yeah, he struggled through. And, and one of the advantages of having this other, this new opportunity to re-edit the movie is that I have uh, computer equipment and uh, knowledge that I didn't have when I was doing it the first time. So there's all sorts of little tricks to make those performances work that I didn't have any knowledge of in, you know, in the past. Speeding things up, cutting, cutting certain things out, uh, taking the dialogue from one take and putting it on the video for another take, you know. Uh, rather than looping, often that's a better idea. Yeah. You can actually get into the business of cutting a line of dialogue into syllables, you know, thing which <laughs> syllable you like, and then stringing it all together and, and syncing it up with their lip movements. And um, there are some scenes in, in Sleepless Nights where I hope it's not obvious. I don't think it is obvious, uh, but that's what I was doing for some of those folks who aren't professional actors and maybe gave us a week of performances. Uh, I was able to salvage the performance to some extent by, by doing that. Now, I don't know if, is it, you could probably answer this, is it, but was it budgetary reasons or can you not safely put someone in a real casket? Is that why you have the kind of old school casket that he sleeps no, in? No, it was budgetary reasons. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I, logically, really, uh, a vampire like Christian Grey, uh, and we had that name first. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he probably wouldn't be sleeping in a casket of any kind, right? Right. And that's one of the reasons why I put that joke in later on, which always gets a laugh when uh, Jar uh, when Caitlin asks him, "Well, if you don't need a, a coffin, why do you have it in the first place?" And he says, "It's they're surprisingly comfortable." Yeah. Uh, and so I guess that's a sort of way of putting a lampshade on that on that issue. But logically, he probably wouldn't have a coffin, and he probably wouldn't have a coffin that looks like an old fashioned. Uh, yeah. uh, coffin from uh, you know the turn of the century or before, uh, but uh, it was budgetary. Buying an, a casket is an expensive proposition. Well, I didn't. I didn't know if there was any place to rent one. Or, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Being in New York, yeah, there's a lot of you know productions up production in Africa. There's got to be somebody that rents caskets to production companies. <laughs> yeah, there, there probably are. Yeah, but the problem is the the price is obscene. Yeah, I remember uh, when we were working on uh, Sleepless. Uh, a producer decided to find somebody who could serve as a sort of uh, set dresser, you know, a set, set designer. And he hired this young fellow who had a very interesting resume. He had worked for Disney and he, he had a lot of credentials. And the first day he comes out to Long Island where we were shooting, he has a, uh, a, a book, you know, a loose leaf folder with all sorts of photos inside. He went to prop houses and he took pictures of all the different pieces of furniture and underneath on in each Polaroid, there's, it's going to be this much a day, you know, so candelabra, $150 a day. <laughs> and, uh, and I said to the guy, I said, you know, I don't even know if the producer can afford you. So <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you should be spending $150 a day for a candelabra, you know, so that guy didn't come back. Right. <laughs> we couldn't use them, unfortunately. See, I was thinking that we could get somebody in that could say, you know, I got a roll of, of wrapping paper here and I got some books mm -hmm. and I got some, you know, a couple of dried uh, tree branches. I can go in and I can make the place look like a derelict building just with, you know, chewing gum and, and bailing wire. Yeah. But naturally, somebody who does that professionally, they don't want to do that. You know, a schmuck like me will do it because he has no choice. But a professional guy is who's once uh, have a reputation. He's not going to waste his time doing that. And if he did, he would charge you the moon, right? 
Now, I did like the idea of him sleeping in the body bag. As yes. like a, you're not going to bring your casco with you. So that, that, that was a clever idea. I like that. But even that, that wasn't really a body bag. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what it was, right? Just trash bag? No, it was a uh, soup bag. A soup bag? Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, the producer went to a, a, uh, a uh, prop house and he asked for a body bag and they said they didn't have any, but they said, but what about this? <laughs> <laughs> so that's what we ended up with. He also rented from, I think, from the same prop house, he rented Malgod's sword. Mm -hmm. And uh, when we saw it, and it sort of like everything else, it came at the last moment as we we're on the set. That's when we we're first getting a chance to see the sword. Well, the sword was blunt at, at the end and was all rusted. I mean, the, end, the tip of it wasn't pointed, it was blunt. I don't know why, I don't know anything about the history of, of uh, you know, swords or fighting stuff, but uh, I couldn't see where that was going to work. So what we did was we used the blunt sword, the rusty, blunt, ugly sword while we were shooting the scene. And then I had to go back and post and superimpose a pointed sword over right. it and, and track it so that it would match the movements of the sword and put a reflection on it so it looked like it was actually there. <laughs> so those are the sort of things that just because we made a mistake on the set and didn't have the proper prop, I had to spend you know days animating swords. You know, I don't know if that's evident in the in the finished film, but you know it was necessary to do because. It would have been ridiculous if he was holding the sword at Gray's throat. It's got a rounded yeah. edge. You know? <laughs> but uh, yeah, those are the sort of things. That, it's just like endless. There's always something that had to be compromised on. We never could really, because we didn't have the money, we never could do things quite the way it should be done. Yeah. Looking back at it now, would you have said it at Christmas or Halloween? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a thought. I suppose you could always, uh, you could always add a little bit to a film by doing that as we've discussed in other yeah. episodes but uh, <clears throat> i think that probably one of the biggest shortcomings of the film is that there really isn't any exterior stuff right uh, we weren't able to find real locations that resembled the places that we were that supposedly we, we were using in the story there was no abandoned warehouse you know surprisingly it turns out in new york there are no abandoned places. <laughs> yeah. If you have a place that isn't being used, it's all boarded up and nobody can get into it. And you would never be able to make a deal with anybody, you know, whoever is the owner. Even if you could reach them, you would never be able to get to make a deal at a reasonable price to use their building for a movie shoot. Yeah. Uh, uh, and the other things like the abandoned warehouse, yeah, this is the sort of thing that probably the Red Letter Media guys have made fun of, the, the sort of cardboard box factory that yeah. action movies always <laughs> yeah. seem to make. Uh, we, we didn't quite end up with that. The place that we were shooting in was a apparently an electronics warehouse. It looked like telephone equipment. But in some of the shots, you can see like shelves with like tags hanging from the items on the shelf. So it doesn't really look like it's abandoned. I tried my best to blur those things into dark. Right. But, uh, you know, I suppose it could have been worse. We don't have anybody uh, falling into, you know, cardboard boxes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how did how'd you do the driving scenes? Was that? Uh, the uh, scene where Malgod and Stritcher are escaping, uh, there was a really rough day when we... Uh, shooting that scene of Hogarth getting out of his Mercedes Benz 
and sort of standing there and the guy with the snake comes up to him and leads him into the building. And that was shot way late at night. Everybody wanted to go home. Uh, the person who owned the car wanted to take the car away. So we only could do two takes. Got that done. And then I said, oh, wait a minute. We need a shot of you guys in the car so we can do that dialogue. So we just parked the car and we put a, draped some black stuff over the back window. And we shot the scene. I think we did two takes. And then it was up to me to go back later and to create a mat that would have, you know, some, some way to put passing scenery right, in, yeah. behind them. Uh, so I don't know if it's completely convincing, but I suppose I've seen worse, you know, probably wasn't the best way to shoot that scene. Probably a better way to shoot it would, would have been to actually be inside the car with them because it seems a little, you know, silly to, to be able to hear the dialogue, even though the car is apparently at a distance, you, and they're not shouting. You would think right, they yeah. would have to shout <laughs> to be heard the car sounds, but, but I think it's passable, you know, uh, those are, those are all the things where you say, uh, if we had had money and we could have done things the way a, a big studio would do them, it, it might have made a difference between the thing being basically a forgotten film uh, uh, and being something that might have been like a, a minor cult success, you know. But those little things, you know, people find off-putting. I think it's better in the new version. I think I fixed it up so it looks a little more presentable, but... I can see people objecting. Also, there was a scene in the original version where we actually see Malgot getting his head cut off. Oh, okay. And that didn't work at all. I was f filled with enthusiasm for Final Cut Pro and I began to feel <laughs> my godlike powers. Yeah. I could do anything. And I thought I'd try doing like this little primitive animation of a sword slicing through his neck and cutting his head off but it didn't fool anybody. <laughs> and it was funny at the time when I was showing it to people, they would say, oh, that's so cool. You know? Yeah. But they were thinking of it differently. They were thinking of it, it's cool in itself, but in the movie, it's terrible. You yeah. Know? Just remind you, you're watching a low budget video production, you know? Uh, and there were a couple other things like that in the film that when I watched the original version now, I sort of wince. And those were all things that, were instantly excised when I was doing the movie. <laughs> first to go, you know. But uh, yeah. So anyway, we uh, the, this was a sort of an attempt to save a lost film. That's the way I like to look at yeah. it. And I think that the version that we have now is presentable. Anybody who's interested in vampire stories will probably find it interesting. If nothing else, uh, people who are interested in low budget filmmaking should find it like an interesting artifact from that time to be able to look at a movie that was done right at the beginning of the digital filmmaking era, done on what was essentially a consumer camcorder. Yeah. And yeah see, I think, <clears throat> I think uh, independent filmmakers today should watch it to learn something of like, this is how you can do a movie without looking, looking really cheap or, you know, if you've got a really good script, you don't you don't need to fill it with comedy. <laughs> you know yeah. what I'm saying? Well, it's unfortunately true that uh, a lot of the sort of uh, so bad it's good. So, so the films that are being done that are intentionally that, yeah, uh, they seem to be embraced more readily by uh, the audience than something like this. I don't know exactly. I can't really put my finger on what the why the reaction. Uh, to Sleepless Nights was the way it was the first time that it came out. Because it certainly wasn't 
celebrated, you know, by vampire film fans or by right. horror film fans. Uh, and I don't really know. I can't really figure out why. It could simply be. I mean, if we want to be honest, the first thing we have to consider is maybe people really honestly don't enjoy it. They don't <laughs> think it's a very good movie. It's possible it's not a good movie. I, you know, obviously, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, I have my own preconceptions about that. Uh, but it's possible some people just don't think it's any good. But another possibility is uh, it might, like I say, be in that sort of in-between ground where it's not so bad that it can be entertaining uh, because it's bad. And it's not good enough so that people who really like, you know, high quality cinema would want right. to rush to, you know, throw awards at it. It really was just meant to be a sort of home video product. So uh, that was the period we were going through when it seemed like just about anything could be released on home video. And we said, well, well let's, let's make something that will sort of uh, be in the tradition or in the spirit of the old Dark Shadow soap opera. We're shooting on video, which is true of Dark Shadows. And uh, we're shooting on a low budget, which was true of Dark Shadows. And it's a, a romantic, a gothic romance, you know, with vampires, which is true of Dark Shadows. So the people that love that series, and they still uh, exist in, in droves, they should find something about this that's entertaining or interesting. And surprisingly, no. I, didn't yeah. I guess if it's not exactly Dark Shadows, then they're not interested. You don't think, do you think that the uh, no nudity, no sex, you think I heard it? Well, I imagine it would, especially when you consider who we had as a leading lady. Yeah. You know, if we I just imagine it. people going to the video store of Blockbuster renting movies they're wanting to go home and <laughs> yeah. if they're getting a low budget horror movie they're going to expect some nudity in the sex scenes yeah well the script did originally have a lot of nudity in it because i felt that vampire movies they need you know blood and breasts yeah. you know the sort of main ingredients but as we were doing the film uh i began to think that maybe it wasn't such a good idea because i felt and this is just my own thinking. It's not, it has nothing to do with what Jacqueline uh, might have thought. But she was a person who, as I say, she had a certain established reputation. She was a, a known person on the New York City art scene. Uh, and she had a husband who was a fairly important person in, in the New York art scene. And so I thought, you know, if we, even if she's willing to do these nude scenes, if she has second thoughts, one way to make sure that the footage is never seen it's just not to finish the film yeah so it actually was safer to not do that stuff also the crew that we were working with at the time and the conditions that we were working with at the time when we had the opportunity to do the nude scenes uh they, there was an environment there was a, uh, an atmosphere that wasn't really uh completely uh, conducive uh, to that sort of thing. There was uh, we had some difficulty with some of the crew members that were involved in the project early on, and uh, I didn't really think that it was a good idea to risk any unpleasantness uh, by trying to do any anything that would involve intimate stuff, you know, yeah. nudity or sex scenes or anything like that. So in in the end, I think probably even though. A little bit of breast nudity probably would have helped the box office. And Jacqueline did say that she was willing to do the nudity. Uh, she never said, I, can't, I won't do this. Her husband was a little... <laughs> yeah. I spoke to him only once on the phone, and he said to me, oh, there's a lot of nudity in this. <laughs> so, well, okay, thanks. Glad you, you like the script. Yeah. But uh, we ended up 
not shooting any of that stuff. So, uh, you know, yeah, I suppose it probably would have affected the commercial. I mean, in my opinion, it doesn't hurt it, but I just think uh, thinking about other people watching those movies are, that's what they're wanting. Well, the problem is I think that ultimately if you do stuff like that, it has to start seeming more like an exploitation movie. Yeah. I mean, in the case of Demon Resurrection, it's fairly filled with, uh, you know, sex and nudity and violence. And that's all right because it was meant to be an homage to exploitation films. That it, it, that's what we were doing. But in this case, I mean, obviously movies and, and TV shows like talk shows never had any nudity in them. Right, yeah. Uh, and I just thought, afterwards maybe it's just as well because it would have sort of changed the, the nature of the film it would have made it into something uh you know something other than what it was it, it probably for some people makes it boring you know because they they figure well all this talk 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 at least let's see some breasts yeah <laughs> can she be topless while she's giving me exposition <laughs> well that one scene where she's in bed with jeff uh, i have to admit that was a mistake uh the way i shot that um the producer early on said that he wanted me to try to work in this uh, this uniform top yeah. that I guess belonged to some member of his family, and I guess he thought this would be a nice little tribute that she's she puts on this uniform top. Problem is, by the time we actually got to shoot the scene, it had already been established that they don't the NCA agents don't wear uniforms anything like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And it's not really a very flattering thing. And I, I think if I was doing it now, I'd say, well, maybe she could just wear a, like a sports bra or you know, some sort of uh, something that a woman would wear if she was in bed with a boyfriend. Yeah. Rather than getting up out of bed and putting on this long gray uh, uniform top, which doesn't really make sense in the story. So that was kind of a mistake. There were There were times in the production where because I was, I was a first-time director, I really didn't feel I could be too demanding. I couldn't say no yeah. to some people. And uh, that's what happens when you don't say no. you, know, you got to say no. By the time I got around to Demon Resurrection, I was a little better at saying no. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, you end up putting your neighbor's cat in the movie just because they ask you to. Well, I could come down to that. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't have minded it, some cat action in the movie. But, yeah. uh, nobody had a cat around. <laughs> I mean, it's also true, like those sets that we were talking about, those uh, the associate producers, uh, actually he was the executive producer. Yeah, I'm really grateful that he let us use the, the property, but I didn't know him and I didn't know how, how far yeah. we could go and re rearranging his stuff. <laughs> well, the attitude was when I got there, I thought, you know, we don't, uh, this is it. This is what, you know, he, he hadn't done anything because he, nobody had told him that he had to change anything or fix anything. So we got there and I said, well, is now the time? To tell them we're going to rearrange all your stuff and who's going to do it you know am i going to add the crew going through this guy's stuff rearranging stuff you know so it just didn't work and and uh that's why with demon resurrection and i'm working the funny thing is the guy i'm working with on demon resurrection was the guy that i was so concerned about offending. <laughs> yeah. uh and by the time i got the demon resurrection is no we got to take this down put that in move that there you know we had we uh, we realized that Everything in the shot has to be on, under our control. You can't say, oh, well, there's a funny picture on the wall because we couldn't, you know, we were working in a place where we couldn't change it. Yeah. Everything has to be uh, worked on and everything has to be under your control. Everything in the shot is your responsibility. And uh, that's one of the few things that uh, 
uh, who's the fellow that uh, did uh, the cabin movies? Uh, uh, I want to say Elon Musk, but it's e- 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 Ethan Roth. Eli Roth. Eli Roth. Yeah, I don't really care for his movies, but yeah, I don't either. He said in some interview that exactly the same thing that you're responsible if you're the director you're responsible for everything in the shot and if the wall needs to be painted you paint the wall now that wouldn't be practical in that in the situation we were in he was working on movies that might have even his earliest films had budgets of almost a million dollars yeah in our case you know originally it was supposed to be a twenty thousand dollar movie <laughs> so he can go into a situation and say get those guys to paint that wall and when we finish shooting get them to paint it back and those they have people on staff that have the paint and they got the rollers and they got the, they get paid <laughs> to be there. We didn't have any of that, you know. We couldn't go into a place and say, We're gonna paint your walls and doors, and but don't worry, we'll paint it back, you know, we'll make yeah. it look better when we're done. No, I, I couldn't do it, and there wasn't anybody <laughs> to do it, you know. So we had to sort of take things as we found them, and that hurts the movie. I don't think there's any question about that. But by the time we got the demon resurrection, we realized. First of all, maybe we should come up with stories that don't involve scenes in on the roof of Manhattan skyscrapers, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> or scenes in abandoned uh, warehouses, or scenes in uh, government agency headquarters. You know, those aren't things that you can easily do if you don't have any money. And actually, I'm surprised when I look at the film now, it isn't that bad, really. I mean, the no. uh, the, the NCA headquarters is passable for, for what we're trying to do. You know. Uh, but who done I, your, who done your graphics on your screens, like on the computer? Oh, that was all done by me. I was did, it? Okay. created all the animations afterwards. Matter of fact, the whole thing is part of the animation, the computer, <laughs> yeah. everything in there. And then oh, okay. I would put reflections of the actors in the, in the screen. I'm just, I'm just glad your police station or your doctor's office wasn't black trash bags. <laughs> hanging up in a garage so <laughs> but we do have some scenes where we have like shower curtains and stuff and that, yeah that's 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 that that, that, that yeah uh i that that was unfortunately the that pristine house that frank had up in long island he had uh, he, he owned two houses and he had one house that he was about to sell and he had fixed it all up and there was really nothing we could do like i said yeah. nothing we saw we, i don't know how i got the idea <laughs> of just taking shower curtains and shredding them and hanging them over the banister but we had to hide the perfect uh, stuff, you know, the perfect banister and the yeah. perfect stairs. Uh, there was another problem with that that whole sequence where she first goes into his house. It was shot much too darkly. As the DP we had at the time, and I don't blame him because none of us really knew what you know, how to do this. But uh, he shot everything at the light level that was on the set. In other words. Uh, when I got around to doing Demon Resurrection, I realized you had to overlight the set slightly yeah. in order to get a nice, sharp, bright picture, and then you darken it. Yeah, first, you can darken it by stopping down, you know, closing your aperture, but then later you can darken it further when you're in post-production. But he just set the lights the way he thought it should look, and then he set the camera pretty much for automatic. And so the footage that was recorded was all very noisy, and it was very dark and murky. And there was really no way to, to fix that because if you try brightening it, you're just brightening the noise. Yeah. And that was a real struggle when I was doing this version was to try to make that look like anything, you know. Uh, when you have scenes like that, sometimes the best thing to do is just try to get through them as quickly as <laughs> <Yeah>. possible. <laughs> uh, I suppose if I had had some money for, the, for this restored or re-edited version, maybe those were sequences that we could have reshot to a certain extent. 
because it would have been probably would have been fairly easy to find a, a place something like that and to put somebody in a black NCA uniform. We don't see their faces. Right. So we're walking up the stairs and things like that. And, you know, we would have been able to replace that ugly, noisy footage. But there's a certain point where you say to yourself, how much more would that add to the film to go through all that trouble? Yeah. Expense, you know, is it really going to make a difference in terms of whether or not people like the movie? I don't know if it would. So I know, like, I'm sure when you wrote it, did you ever had, did you ever think, oh yeah, I'm going to make this into a movie one day? Like as you wrote the script? Well, that was always my dream. Yeah. <clears throat> but like, so as you were writing it though, do you think you, do you think the end product is what you were imagining as you were writing it? Or, I mean, obviously you probably was hoping for more money, but. Right. I think that's probably the biggest <laughs> difference. Yeah. I mean, I, I was assuming that if it was made into a movie it would be made for 500,000 or a million dollars. And I assumed it would be shot on film at that point. Uh, and I thought that probably something shot on film that would give it a sort of weight uh, that, you know, it needed in order to make something that's so talky uh seem like a real movie uh and because that is the advantage of shooting on film is it yeah you know, even the worst movies they look like movies you know, yeah. because they are movies they are shot <laughs> uh, but when you're shooting on video you don't really have that advantage first of all you're shooting at um this was interlaced video so that's two fields of 30 frames a second so basically it's the equivalent of 60 frames a second yeah when you deinterlace the video, then you're left with uh, roughly 30 frames a second, which is more frames than film would normally have. Normally film would be 24 frames. And I've noticed that just that extra, those extra frames, they make things like looping uh, or any work with the, uh, with the di uh, dialogue, with the audio, um, that much more difficult. With, with 24 frames a second film, if the looping or the sync, lip sync is off a little bit, nobody cares, right? Yeah. And we could think probably of even major motion pictures that have instances where the links, uh, lip sync is off slightly because the looping isn't exact. But in video, when people see that, oh, yeah. nail you right away. <laughs> oh, yeah, look at that. This, you know, they're amateurs. They don't know how to do it. So I don't know if it's because film is a warmer, softer, more has more sort of hypnotic quality to it as you're watching it, that maybe people aren't so alert to technical things like that. But in video, you have to have the lip sync perfect or as close to perfect as, as you can, otherwise people are going to call you out on it. And if you have a low-budget film, uh, folks are going to jump right to your incompetent. It's, they're not going to spend any time trying to figure out why you have these little technical problems. They just figure you don't know how to make movies, you know. Whereas on a big budget movie, we frequently see mistakes in big budget movies, but the size and, and, the, and the gravity of the production uh, causes people to forgive those yeah. things. You know, they overlook them because they don't want to ruin the experience for themselves. Um, but I could tell with some folks that I showed the movie to back uh, when it first came out, as soon as they saw the, the shape of the frame, they said, oh, that's not a movie. And <laughs> you'll lose them within the first few seconds. Yeah. And certainly by the time you get to the first week performance, the first actor that lives, you know, like some of the less professional folks that we might have used for some of the smaller roles, as soon as you get to a line like that, that's it. You know, people are not interested anymore. I suppose I can understand that in a way because, uh, uh, if you're doing a film that's all about story and character and dialogue, 
you got to get those things right. Oh, yeah. It's not like if it was a slasher movie and everybody's head was being ripped off and the monsters <laughs> running around or zombies. Then you could say, well, who cares about the acting? Who cares about the, the uh, looping work or any of that? People are getting what they came for. Yeah. But in this, the only, what, what they came for supposedly is an interesting story and interesting characters. And if you're not getting that right, or if you have technical problems with that, then you're, you're losing, you know? So I suppose I can understand the criticisms. A lot of the criticisms as painful as it was to hear them when the film yeah. first came out, I had to admit that they were probably right. Now, when you first told me about this movie, when you first said you're working on it, told me the name or what it was about, for some reason I kept thinking about that show Forever Night. Was that out before or after? Well, was that, uh, was that any influence at all or was it? No, I can't say I ever watched Forever Night. Okay. There's a lot of things that came Cause after. Because I, I think it's about a vampire cop. I, I think it is. Yeah. I think so, I yeah. Remember, uh, there was uh, Forever Night and there was Angel, of course, and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and obviously Twilight and, and a whole bunch of other things, Blade, a lot of things that came after uh, we did or were concurrent with it. But I never watched any of that stuff. My only yeah. interest was like the Hammer films and the old Universal films and Dark Shadows and a few other indie vampire things like count yoga or grave of the vampire those that's what i was drawing my influence and my inspiration from uh, i never watched any i don't think i ever watched any regular regularly scheduled vampire tv show yeah. <laughs> other than dark shadows you know? yeah but uh, a lot of uh, i see this even on the imdb they list uh, john carpenter's vampires as a connection you know or a film that we referenced I had never seen John Carpenter's Vampires by that time. And, and as I pointed out, the script that I was working on was finished by 1992. I don't remember when John Carpenter's Vampires came out, but I think it was, it was later than that. that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, and also the name Christian Grey, you know, obviously there's nothing that can be done about that. Yeah. But I have a feeling that probably uh, that author got it from our film because uh, she was apparently writing fan fiction for with the twilight, twilight yeah and apparently the people that own the copyright said don't do that anymore so she took some of the fan fiction and she changed the names and i guess that eventually mutated into the shades of gray books uh but uh, it wouldn't be that much of a stretch to say here she was she obviously if she's on a twilight bulletin board she probably is a fan of vampire movies or vampire tv shows she might have seen or heard something about our film. The name was prominently featured in the promotional material. So she might have said, well, there's a movie that came out a few years ago. Nobody reads yeah. it. I can use that. No problem. And of no, course, there is no problem. You can market it, you can market it that way now. Well, possibly. Featuring, featuring a character with the same name as. <laughs> well, I was originally thinking when I started doing the re-editing to find some way to change the name. Because yeah. I really didn't want people to think, because you know that's going to happen. You know, there's yeah. going to be somebody out there who's, oh, they stole the name from me. <laughs> uh, there seem to be some people that don't really understand how years work. You know, they yeah. think <laughs> something that came out in the 2000s is later than something that was shot in 1999. But anyway, uh, I tried to find a way to easily uh, remove that name from the film, but it but the resources I have, I couldn't really do a very good yeah. job. Don't have any access to the original actors, so there's no way I can go back and have them loop it. Um, and I really didn't want to draw attention to it by 
having some obvious uh, <laughs> yeah. audio work done. Yeah, yeah but, the only uh, what I'm on IMDb, the only uh, ones that tells you that are more like this movie are two other movies called Sleepless Nights. I noticed there was a bunch of yes, as Sleepless fact, Nights on Tubi. <laughs> there's a Sleepless Nights that was uh, that our friend uh, Brad Twig. Uh, you know the uh, the fellow uh, the director. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, he was involved with one of those films, Sleepless Nights. The uh, it's like an anthology film, I guess. Uh, uh, and when he reached out to me a couple of years ago, to uh, to uh, very kindly of him, he reached out to express his appreciation of Demon Resurrection. We discovered that we had a film yeah. <laughs> with the same title in our background. Uh, of course, his thing is really completely different from. Uh, from our film, but uh, there was another movie called Sleepless Night, I guess, which I think is a, like a French uh, action movie. And there may be a few others that have come along since. I would have liked to have changed the film title officially to Sleepless Nights Revamped. And I realized that's, that might be seen as kind of a corny joke. Yeah. Like, revamped, you know, redone, remastered, whatever. But I wanted to find some way to, to distinguish it from the original version because I was aware that there were the other films that have the name Sleepless Nights uh, that have come along since. But uh, Film Hub, the company that we're putting it out through, uh, they insist that you stick with the name that the film had when it was originally released. Why that should be, I don't know. But the funny thing is Amazon has it has like three or four different listings for our film. Yeah. And they all have different information. Uh, so I don't understand, you know, if, if the idea was you use the same name so that all the information about the film will be in one place, and yet they have four different listings for the film, and they actually have one listing for the film, which I guess is the main listing on Amazon, that has the wrong director. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't even know where they got this guy from. Yeah. I don't, he doesn't. He's never done anything connected to... Uh, uh, low budget vampire movies or anything like that and they have some of the reviews for our film on Twig's film on Sleepless Nights the anthology film and I was reading the reviews for uh, for his film and said wait a minute these people are talking about my movie (laughs) (laughs) I I noticed when I loaded the uh, of course you know you sent me a a file of it and I loaded it into my Plex server and it pulls down it pulled down the wrong title, the wrong cover. <laughs> it's, it doesn't have anything on it. Well, fortunately, Plex, which is showing the new revised version, they actually got all the information right. Yeah. But only because Film Hub tipped me off that Plex gets all its film information, all its pictures and, and cast information from the movie database, not the internet movie database, but yeah. another database called the movie database. So I quickly went to the movie database, <laughs> uploaded all the images of the actors and, and the new key art so that when Plex or anybody on any other streaming platforms, uh, they would get the, the latest stuff. It's very frustrating because, you know, I could see people saying, well, your movie isn't a big deal. Why should anybody knock themselves out? But how is it ever going to have a chance yeah. of reaching an audience if you fuck up all the advertising? Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and I'm not knocking Film Hub. It's not their fault, right? But, uh, I mean, they're trying to find their way in, in this strange, complex world as well. They're trying to find some sort of rules of operation so that, you know, they, they're not having to rethink 
their procedures every time they have a new movie submitted. Because yeah. I assume they have hundreds of movies, maybe thousands of movies every year that are submitted to them. But uh, on, on Amazon's part, uh, I just don't know, you know, I, I don't see how that happens. Uh, even if you say, okay, there's confusion because it's two horror movies and they both have the same title. Okay, but the date is different. Yeah. My, my film is from 2002. Uh, the other film is from 2016. Um, and the other film has completely different co cover art from the cover art that uh, Amazon had, had for our film. So it's perplexing and it's bewildering and, and saddening, but uh, that's it's got to hurt uh, our chances if yeah. there's the, any sort of confusion about the movie, right? Because you, you run the risk of having people that thought, oh, I, th I, I was buying that other movie. Why didn't I yeah. get this piece of shit? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's not the sort of uh, customer satisfaction uh, that you should be going for, right? Now, so now you, now you fully own the rights and everything, right? I mean, even though someone else distributed it or? No, the producer okay. and the producer and the production company that he created, uh, they own Sleepless Nights. I uh, have some copyright uh, uh, you know, I, uh, I, I own something and in, yeah. in, in the, you know, I am the original writer of it, but he bought the rights to make a movie and then he okay. hired me to be the director and then he hired me to be the editor. <laughs> yeah. So ultimately, I didn't know if, I didn't know if like, cause I, when I, after I watched it, I've watched it twice now. I was like, you know, it probably, it might, it would be do maybe do good on YouTube. I don't know if it was something you thought about doing. Well, I if we could get there's, it there's no because there's no nudity or anything, and I think it would, right. I don't think it, it would hurt it any. Well, I if we could get it to YouTube, uh, I don't know if Film Hub supplies uh, films to YouTube. I know well, I didn't know if you could just upload it yourself to your own. No, unfortunately, they did away with that back when YouTube. Uh, they sort of flirted with the idea of allowing people to upload movies similar to the way Amazon was doing. Right. You could upload your film and they would sell it for you and you would make, be able to make money from it. And then they quickly shut that whole thing down, uh, for probably for the same reason why Amazon is starting to move away from that as well. Uh, they are making their own product and they don't want to become like a dumping ground for what is considered low budget, low quality material, you know. Amazon used to be, there was two sides to Amazon. There was the uh, pay-per-view side and there was the uh, free with Prime. And if you uploaded your movie to them, anybody could, if they had a feature film, if they own the rights to a feature film, you could upload your movie to Amazon. And if you gave them permission, they would offer it free with Prime and they would also sell it as a pay-per-view title. Right. And recently they said, oh, we're not doing that anymore. <laughs> now we decide if we want to put your movie on free with prime and please don't ask please don't approach us <laughs> yeah. so you can still upload your movie to them for the pay-per-view side at least for now yeah but uh, there's no certainty that you're ever going to get on the free with prime side which is really where the money was yeah you know? the big problem for indie filmmakers is there's no place where you can go and have your film suggested to people the way Amazon or Netflix suggests films to people. Uh, that is essential. It doesn't do me any good to have a website for my movie uh, where people can buy the movie. You know, I have one of those little apps where they can pay and watch the movie right there at the website because I don't have anybody going to that website. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and when people go on Amazon and they watch a, a horror movie, 
there's no little thing underneath that says, why don't you go to Bill's website and watch his movie? You know, yeah. But if your film is uh, free with Prime, then as soon as people watch a similar movie, Amazon almost automatically suggests, you know, hey, take a look at this movie. Yeah, Demon and, Resurrection was uh, suggested to me, right? yeah. Demon Resurrection, quite a few people uh, said to me, I had never heard of your movie, and then I saw Amazon suggest that I watch it, so I did, and I liked yeah. it. You know? <laughs> Uh, so that's what you need, uh, because there's no other way to promote your film, right? Certainly not going to be promoting in newspapers or magazines or on television, because it would be ridiculously expensive. And you wouldn't even be sure that you'd be reaching the audience you need to reach. Yeah. So uh, we need to have uh, the ability to have our product seen somewhere. But Amazon has decided uh, that they don't want to really do that anymore. Uh, Amazon also owns the IMDb, and IMDb also has their own free TV, free with ads thing, similar to Tubi. Yeah. So uh, that's another way, I guess, another opportunity. If you can't get your film free with Prime, maybe you can get it free with ads on the IMDb TV thing. Uh, and of course, you got Zumo and Plex and Tubi and a bunch of other uh, streaming platforms that are popping up now and then doing pretty well. Tubi has become quite successful. Oh yeah. So where, where can everybody find your sleepless nights revamped at? Unfortunately, right for the moment, it can only be seen on Plex with, with ads. Yeah. And they, uh, they have, they have a decent amount of ads on there. Oh, they sure do. On their yeah. platform. Yeah. <laughs> uh, much more. I was kind so. of shocked when I started watching something on there. I was like, Oh my God. Starts with ads. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's almost I mean, like every five minutes there was an ad. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, uh, I was sort of hoping that it would end up on pay-per-view on Amazon first, uh, and I was sort of hoping that it would end up on Tubi, but at least for now, Plex is the place to start it with, and I'm thankful for that. I think oh, they yeah. do make, other than the ads, it's a good presentation of the film, you know, the picture quality and the audio quality is, is solid. But we're hoping that in the uh, weeks, months to come, it'll start appearing on more platforms. Problem is there's no way to hurry these people along. Yeah. You know, you can't call them and say, where's my film? You know? <laughs> they don't want to talk to you and, and they, they wouldn't give you any answers anyway. They may not even know the answers, you know? So, but uh, if people uh, go to my Twitter uh, account, uh, there's a, I have my own William, William Hopkins Twitter account and there's also a Sleepless Nights uh, Twitter account. Uh, and there's a Facebook page for Sleepless Nights. Uh, you go to any of those things, you'll be able to get the latest news on where it's showing up. For right now, uh, Plex TV uh, for Sleepless Nights and Tubi and Amazon for Demon Resurrection and Zumo uh, for, for Demon Resurrection. Yeah, I, def I definitely recommend Sleepless Nights. I enjoyed it. I, that's very kind of you to say that. I appreciate it. It's nice to get a good review after all these yeah. years. <laughs> But, uh, and I should say, I thank all the people that were participating, some of whom, uh, as I mentioned, are no longer with us, unfortunately. Yeah. I thank all of those folks for uh, putting all the hard work and effort into it. And I hope that now we've finally done justice to the thing, that this will be the version uh, that uh, uh, will finally, you know, reach some sort of audience and, and uh, an appreciative audience. Uh, so we, we've rescued it from oblivion. Yeah. And some, some of these people, some of the people in the film, they never went on to any sort of uh, acting career. So this is their only work. I don't know if that necessarily makes them happy. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but now their work 
for whatever it's worth is is preserved and has some sort of future out of it. I personally, I and I, I probably watched this movie fifty times in the past couple of years as I was yeah. re-editing it, and I have to admit I still have an affection for it. I still think it's an interesting story, and it isn't your standard issue, you know, action-oriented horror movie. It's not loaded with gore. It has a few gore scenes, but it's not loaded with gore. Uh, but it, I think it's an intriguing story. And just to see a low-budget horror movie that has a story is unusual. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> so that's its strength, I think. Yeah, um, right. So anyway, and I thank you, too, for allowing me to ramble on about the movie. Oh, no problem. And maybe at some point we'll get a Blu-ray or DVD version out as well. We'll see how, we'll see what the reaction is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, this was a good episode, and uh, until next week, we will continue to watch the good, the bad, the cheaply made. Thank you. Yep.